The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ plus community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. This is Pride Connection, sponsored by BlindLGBTPride.org, otherwise known as BPI, every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. on ACB Media One, and shortly after on all your major podcast catchers. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection. I'm so glad to be sitting back in the host seat for a couple of weeks. I'm Anthony Corona, and I'm here with a great panel from Blind LGBT Pride International. And we're going to be talking about aging in the workplace today, and more specifically, ageism in the workplace. And I think the best way to jump into this topic is for us to introduce ourselves, talk about where we are in our workplace journey. And then we'll go to a couple of targeted questions. So playing double duty tonight, our executive producer extraordinaire, Bryn, is here. So Bryn, you just had some career movement. So where do you find yourself in the work journey? Well, I am 42 years old uh, and I am back at the state of Minnesota. Uh, I left briefly to try my hand at accessibility testing. And uh, that didn't that didn't work out for me. And I found that I was happiest working with people. And um, so I went back to the state of Minnesota and have been there since uh, January. And what I do at the state of Minnesota is work with our senior population. And I teach assistive technology. And so a lot of what we talk about is ways that the, the, our clientele can either stay working or ways that they can use assistive technology after they retire to maintain that independence. So I'll be answering some questions from the perspective of somebody in their early 40s in the workplace and facing some ageism in certain areas, especially in technology. But my um, expertise really comes in when we're talking about uh, seniors who are uh, in the workplace and facing vision loss. And you may touch on some of the things you've experienced, but we would never use anyone's names or, or anything that would be identifying about someone that you've worked with. All right. Our president is here with us as well. So, Leah, step on up. Hey, everybody. I actually am 47. And I work for a major technology company. Uh, that has offices all over the world. And I have definitely noticed over the past few years, as I have been moving up, I was first a contractor. And then I uh, began working for this company 
directly and I'm an accessibility analyst right now. So I work on a lot of strategy and I'm definitely at this point noticing (laughs) that I am markedly older than a lot of people who, who work there. It seems to me, at least just through observation, a lot of people who are there are in their 20s to mid-30s. And to me, it's really noticeable when there are different career building workshops and people are talking a lot about getting to the next rung on the ladder and climbing up and up and up and up. And from a personal level at 47, I'm looking at how can I get the most out of, let's say, 18 to 20 more years of work before I can retire. And I'm I'm not so much looking to break my back, climbing up a ladder to a peak position, because I would like to get to a place where I am really comfortable, where I feel like I'm making a solid contribution to the disability community, and not so much about I want to get to a place where I'm working 70 hours a week and managing 20 people. And it's really kind of a dramatic difference because, you know, a lot of people don't understand that perspective yet because I am grappling with the fact that I am actually starting to slow down. (laughs) I need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep per night. I get really stressed and I get very agitated if I work more than a certain amount and if I'm juggling too many things. And those those are things that I didn't have to contend with when I was in my 20s. And those are things that they're not really discussed. I haven't, I don't think at this point, really felt any ageism in terms of the hiring process yet. But I can see as, as I'm getting older that there will probably be some gaps in understanding about, you know, I have medical appointments for this. I have a medical appointment for that. I'm dealing with fatigue. Those are things that for the most part, people in their 20s tend not to say, right? I mean, you stay up all night, then you just suck it up and you work an entire day. The other piece I want to point out, because, you know, we are all visually impaired people, is I have also found that a lot of the career workshops that these people have graduated from college, they moved right into a steady income generating job, where I think a lot of us who are visually impaired or lost our sight later had a much more choppy experience of having big gaps between employment and, and not having quite the same upward experience that a lot of these people have. And so I think in addition to the aging, we're dealing with some communication disparities in terms of what a lot of people with disabilities have to tackle just becoming part of the workforce. I, I definitely am when I'm, you know, when I'm introducing myself, going to touch on a few of those same issues from a different perspective. We also have Destiny with us. So Destiny, tell us a little bit about your work journey so far. I'm the youngest one in the room. I'm 31 years old. I just started working. Like this is the job I have right now is the longest term job I've had. That was outside of like jobs that I got through like sheltered employment at my school or through like when I was in other employment situations. This is the longest that wasn't anything like that. And I can see ageism on both fronts because both 
at a place that I've volunteered and I've worked at different places. Places I'm at right now, it kind of has like a little bit of like ageism towards younger people. Like they, I hear a lot, oh, the young people these days, they don't want to work, you know, things like that. And I've heard about, haven't really witnessed much of it, but I've heard about ageism from with older communities because they think, oh, they're going to be retiring eventually these days anyway, or they're not going to be able to do as much as the kind of things I heard. But so those are the experiences I bring to the table. It's different because I haven't had jobs my whole adult life. So I kind of relate differently to people in that way, too. All right. Thank you for that, Anthony. And I, like Leah, am 47. I lost my sight midlife uh, right <laughs> seven years ago. So right as I was hitting 40 and being full-time, almost full-time contractually, uh, it's been about nine months. And I was looking for about five and a half years. And I left at the pinnacle of the career that I was at. I, I was working for the Associated Press and making a lot of money and, and at an editor position. So I knew that there was no way I was going to re-enter the workforce quite at that level. But um, it's been a very interesting experience. And it wasn't until recently someone said to me, you know, I kept blaming it on the blind thing. Uh, I honestly never had to look for, for work for very long. You know, I set out, did my due diligence every day, looked for companies that I wanted to be a part of, did the research, got the job. And so, you know, after a couple of years, I, I had to blame it on the blindness that it's just not happening. And I would have these dynamic interviews when they didn't know I was blind. And then I would go in for an in-person interview pre-pandemic. And bam, it was like a totally different conversation. So recently someone pointed out, you know, you're also not 25 or 35 looking for a job. You're 43, 45, 47. And I really hadn't thought about it. And the more I think about it, you know, the combination of all three, <laughs> you know, the three intersectionalities make it more difficult to find good employment. And um, the aging thing, you know, I get into some of these group interviews and the conversation I can follow and, and I can answer back, but I can't answer back quite in the lingo that they're throwing down because I don't want to say something completely stupid. And I don't want to use the lingo from the late 90s and early 2000s that I know is going to be like, oh, you know, the geezer. And so I answer more professionally, but with a, a little chuckle in my voice or something when it's that banter kind of conversation. But there's a marked difference in the generational way people work, the way they approach, how they work, how they approach interviews, everything. And, and you have to be aware of it and kind of adjust to it or you're, you're marked out of it, at least in the interviewing process. So that's a little bit about me. And we also have Scott Marshall, a longtime BPI member. And uh, Scott, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you are in the work-life journey? Hi, everybody. Long time. That means I'm old, right? <laughs> Actually, I'm in uh, chapter whatever it would be, two or three, maybe. I just retired uh, at age 71. From uh, 20 years with the U.S. government, I can't imagine I lasted that long. So I am, I am really uh, looking at the, the, the next chapter, honestly, in terms of uh, adventures I want to get into, things I want to do, all that kind of good stuff. And so far, I've been busier uh, at home here uh, over the last few months than I've been in, in quite a while. So 
it hasn't been a loss really at all. In the last few years of your, you know, your work journey, did you feel differently than the middle stage of your work journey? I, I mean, I can't say that you couldn't have felt different than the beginning of your journey, but the, when did you start to feel different at work? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I think you start feeling differently at work when you start having confidence in yourself such that uh, you know that you're a contributing member of a team, that your uh, your opinions are, are valued, all that sort of stuff, that you've sort of gotten to know your game. And I, I think Part of that is getting to know a subject matter and know it well so that people will respect you for that. So I think I can't give you a a number when that happened. It's a gradual thing. And then on the down on the downside of it all, uh, you, you'd start deciding, well, this is a family show. I realize how much more uh you know uh bull dookie, as Rachel used to say, you want to put up with. And and uh, how much do you want to work, and how much do you want to go that extra mile, and and then uh, you just start to decide. Well, maybe you need to figure out the work balance, a life balance thing, a little better. And uh, hey, what what do you want to do next? I'm just wondering, Scott, if there was a a moment or like an anecdote that you have where you reached a place where you understood you couldn't carry as much work weight as you once did well i don't know if i ever felt that way i mean Mm -hmm. i had to to probably compensate for things uh, more than i did when i was you know 30 years old i mean i did i used to never write anything down when i was 30 (laughs) (laughs) i mean i uh you know now i have trouble remembering what i had for breakfast no i'm just teasing but um yeah I, I probably wrote things down, uh, you know, later in my career more, you know, refreshed with notes uh, more before I did a speech, which normally I could do off the top of my head without thinking about it. And, yeah, you know, that's, I guess, part of the deal. Have you had any experiences with ageism that you'd feel comfortable sharing with us? No, I, I, I guess in the workplace, I, I, I haven't. I, I never really felt it. I, I, I was in a position where I did have significant responsibility. Um, was I always listened to? No, but that never happens in the workplace ever. <laughs> um, but and and you just sort of got used to that. So I, I don't know. I can't say that people wrote me off because I was old. Maybe my boss's calculation was, oh my God, this guy's costing me more money than uh, <laughs> that he's worth. <laughs> and maybe but... <laughs> maybe we can get two people or whatever to do the job for a whole lot cheaper now. I don't know if that was ever <laughs> in his uh, calculus. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know. So he was a bottom had... line kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, he was a sociopath in some ways, too. So he didn't get along <laughs> well with people. So we were kind of different in that regard. But I no, I can't say that that was... I think I'm going to throw it to Bryn. Um, and I, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier, or I think it was I was saying it. So, But I think it also kind of depends on the the job 
that you're in, you know, the career, because, you know, Scott, you were in formal legalities. The rest of us are in tech. And I think that there's a, a certain relaxedness in tech that gives more space for the differences between generations. So Bryn, you know, working with a different age level clientele, do you see stories like that where, you know, they generationally didn't function in their job as well towards the end? Yeah. And I would say that um, it was ableism masquerading as ageism. And so what I mean by that is someone is losing their vision and they're close to retirement age. And they go, well, well, Bob, I think it's time, you know, maybe you ought to think about retiring and getting yourself that RV and, you know, going out and exploring the countryside and, you know, spending a little more time at home and all that. They see the vision going and they start acting as if, uh, well, it's, it's time for retirement. And if you lose your vision at age, you know, 20, 30, 40, you, you start talking about vocational rehab and you start talking about accommodations from your workplace so that you can keep working. And when you get older, I feel like a lot of times it's, well, we probably ought to go ahead and buy that gold watch for you and push you out the door. And it's really saddening. You know, yeah, they try to couch it and make it pretty. Right. And there was a guy that uh, I work with and I won't give his name or any specifics of where he worked, but uh, he was an accountant. And he has a great mind for math. And there are ways to make accounting software accessible. But he didn't know that. And they didn't know that. Mm. No one did their research. And it was just, well, time for you to retire. And it just makes me so angry to watch people willingly give up their jobs that they love doing and they still have a passion for. And they could still keep doing if they just got the training to do it. But, you know, well. I guess I'm just getting too old. Well, you know, that's illegal. Yeah. <laughs> too, yeah. you know, I mean, it is. Uh, failure to accommodate, uh, you know, and I, I, I've i known people who've been fearful about asking for an accommodation, you know, when, when their vision was, you know, failing. And I, I think some of that, of course, was the struggle of losing sight in and of itself. They didn't even know what the what the real possibilities were and how rehab uh, or tech training or however you want to, whatever you want to call it, could in fact allow you to do the job that you knew you could do. I think the tricky part is that so many times people lose their sight and they're in a world they completely don't understand and they don't yeah. know the resources that are right, out that's there. Exactly where you know, I think the other thing is workplaces in many cases are not set up to give people the time off that they need to grieve and to make adjustments when they acquire a disability, whether it's blindness or, you know, whether they are in an accident that puts, you know, where they're quadriplegic or Mm -hmm. um, where their environment doesn't change, but they do. A lot of workplaces are not equipped to help somebody with that kind of accommodation. I wish that exact experience. Yeah, Anthony, I'm curious because you had a job, you were, you loved your job. 
you know, you were at the apex and, of your career. And they were so good to me. You know, they they kept extending my, um, they were calling it a sabbatical. So they kept extending it and I had used all the time that was available to me. They had worked out a program and I was trying furiously to figure out everything I could to get back there. And it came to a point, I was managing a department and they they, they couldn't not have someone new in that spot to handle it. it you know, I was half working and half, you know, taking care of all of my mobility and all that. And I, we had the conversation and it was like, no, you know, for the good of the company, you have to hire someone. Thank you so much. And, you know, when I have this completely figured out, we'll see where there's a space for me. But if there wasn't a space because there, there wasn't the willingness to take a chance on changing accessibility and protocols and all of that kind of thing. And that was that. I was curious, it had you, let's say that you been 10 years younger when you suddenly lost your sight. Do you think this dynamic would have been different? I'm curious whether you feel like you would have been at a place where you would have, I don't know, you, you would have fought harder, you would have done something differently. Because I am curious whether the age dynamic also played into this. It, it did. It did in a, in a really strange way. I had a really successful career. It, it happened quickly. It happened well. And so 10 years before, I still would have been the editor of uh, the editor of, I would have been just starting as the editor of that department. But I would, I would say this, I think if I were a couple of years younger and in any other job level than the level that I was at, there would have been a way to do it. And I can't blame them a hundred percent because I didn't fight. There was a pride part of me that thought I could figure it all out quickly. And if not come back to the AP, find something comparable somewhere else. I didn't want to take the cut of stature, you know, responsibility, and of course, pay to make it work as a blind person. But I didn't understand anything about being blind at that point. So, you know, I had very little services at that point. I was doing it all on my own. I wouldn't make that same decision knowing what I know now. No, I was agreeing with, agreeing with you. I'm uh, totally under, understandable. I, I think we're all on the same page there. It's, yeah. it's, it's incredibly difficult, uh, even for the best performer, to be able to regroup and 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 uh, you know get those skills together and and get back to where you were at the, at the top of your game. They were a very progressive company as far as diversity, equity, and inclusion across the board, including disabled working staff. And it, it was just a very progressive company. So I do think that in, you know, if I was 10 years younger, they would have invested as much as I would have invested. Do you think knowing what you know now about blindness, and first of all, I'd like to say you, you landed in one of the best possible scenarios as far as losing your vision later in life, that you landed in an organization like ACB with so many role models who are also blind uh, and and started getting services and knew what you were entitled to uh, and had had good connections in terms of getting those services for yourself. But if you knew what you know now, considering everything that happened as far as, as the way that you kind of got pushed out of the workplace, what would you have done differently, do you think, if you had all of your skills already when it all fell apart? Even if I didn't have all of my skills when it all fell apart, what I know now is I would have stayed and I would have made it work. They were asking me what to do. They had no clue. I didn't know I could force them to figure out what to do. Um, I would have stayed and made it work if, if I knew then what I know now. It would have been a kick in the gut pride-wise. 
because I really was very proud of how much I accomplished and where I was at that point. And that would have kicked me in the gut, but I would have made it work thinking to myself, all right, I'll be back in five years. And what do they think of me at that point that I did it once I was blind? You know, like I would have forced myself to get back into, you know, I'm going to compete mode. Because one of the things I see happening to people all the time uh, is they believe uh, what they believed to be true uh, prior to the disability that that blind people can't do this and blind people can't do that, that they're less capable, that the independence is more and more difficult to achieve. And I've seen people sell their homes for no other reason other than, well, I've lost my vision. Again, like I was saying earlier, it is ableism masquerading as ageism. Well, I got to get rid of this big house because I am too old to take care of it anymore. And that's simply not the case. It's simply, I've lost my vision and uh, I'm not confident that I can take care of this house myself anymore. Uh, you can, but you don't believe it. Or you don't know that exactly. to be true because you haven't been taught. You haven't gained the services and the skills yet. And so your belief is, I can't do this. But Brain, you live that every day because if you think about what's available to um, blind and low vision students that are in college and when they're leaving college and all throughout that period of learning how to live life versus what's available to your client's help, it's staggeringly, disgustingly different. You know, oh, you're God, not yeah. sent out with the mission like, okay, help them find their way to productivity or help them find their way to something that fulfills them. It's like, give them toys, let them, you know, be able to do email and stuff and, and work their TV and move along. And that's a yeah, really that's... good example of ageism, because a lot of times, like we're talking about vocational rehab being the focus for younger people that are losing their vision. And then for people who are older, the focus is more on the side of, you know, let's help with Re, you know, regaining independence uh, and and like being able to do things like communicate via email or you know check your Facebook or whatever. But the main goal is not getting back yep. into work. No, uh, and that's that's definitely and was always creamed off the top, and, and they've always never been terribly excited about independent living services. And that's I think in part too because they the whole work life has changed. You know, my father would work for one company and work for many, 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 many years. And now we all have how many careers? I just saw a statistic. Six of them during the average, you know, the Gen Z person is going to have job that many job changes and all that stuff. And and the rehab system totally unequipped to handle that for, for an older person. Nor do they really want to because they really want to get a, a fast case closure, you know? Well, and I think the rehab system too is designed in a way where unfortunately there are certain jobs that for many years blind um, applicants were filtered into, right? Oh, sure. Call centers, social work, being becoming a, a rehab counselor. I think technology maybe in the past 20 years has entered into that dynamic, but, but still the call centers, that is becoming something that I would make a guess that within 10 years, those call centers are going to be completely replaced by automation. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, 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 and most of it's been replaced by shipping it abroad anyway. No. I was just going to say that I think state rehab agencies are at a loss as to how to connect now people that are visually impaired, especially people who have lost their sight when they are older, with 
careers. And I think often that's why the hands go up and it's here, here's 10 hours of training so that you can learn how to use a little bit of JAWS and, and learn how to maybe do some online banking. So Destiny, this might be a good time to bring you back into the conversation and ask, what was your experiences with programming into work or rehab situations? And did you feel that they looked at you as a whole person or were there typecasting that they wanted to push you towards? They really were wanting to typecast me into like entry-level jobs. I rarely heard anything about social work or being a rehab agent. Like, you know, it was mainly just like, oh, well, you know, like when I was in school, it was was always talked about entry-level jobs, working in food service or Amazon or something like that, you know, but that wasn't something I really wanted to do. And then when college didn't wind up working out for me, because it both rehab did try to help me for college, but they gave me wrong information and I wound up being charged a fee. The college charged me when I tried to return a loan. But basically what happened was I didn't mind being able to finish college because I would have to pay all that stuff back first before I could even do that. So I started on my own journey of I got into, that's when I started getting into the peer recovery realm. And there's other people like in vocation rehab, I've heard of people with other disabilities, like having doors counselors who know about that, but in blindness services, they didn't know anything about that. So I was basically doing things on my own. And because they weren't like four-year or even two-year college programs, it was more of like a, a certification program I'm going through, I'm still working at. I didn't have the same assistance with accommodations and stuff like that. And also because I learned some of my independent living skills in groups, there's certain things I need to improve on, like my cooking. And the rehab isn't really good at getting you those kind of independent living assistance besides, oh, we can get you this adaptive equipment. I'm very grateful for them for that aspect, but a lot of people see work as the end-all be-all, and yes, it's how we survive, but there's more to it than that. Do they have resources of showing, you know, you other past, you know, successful people in the blind and low vision community that are, you know, that are doing things out of the cookie cutter or or you never see that in in those kind of programs. You don't really hear about it as much. I mean, you they do you do like if you tell them like that these are the things they don't want to do, these are the things that you want to do, they'll say, "Well, you can do anything if you take a college course, we'll help you." That kind of thing, but they don't it's not really talked about. They don't match you or mentor you up with some nothing like that, right? No. You know, bringing this around, I I guess we could say that there's ageism that goes in both ways. And the problems that we encounter are so intersectional because we're kind of picking into different areas of conversation this evening. Is it the blindness? Is it ageism? Is it the the lingo language? Are we stuck in the cookie cutter? So I'm wondering, Leah, you had said you got to this, you know, that you're at that place where you want to make yourself as productive as possible, but without having to do the stretch, without having to put the extra. So do you feel secure that you're in a place where you can make that happen and ride it out kind of comfortably? You know, if I can just piggyback first, I think on what Destiny was talking about, there's so much of an intersection, I think, between ageism at both ends of the spectrum. I was remembering when, you know, because I've never had usable vision, I was remembering that I had graduated from college with an English major and I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And 
the things I wanted to do, the Department of Rehabilitation was telling me I could not do. I, you know, I wanted to go into broadcasting. I actually wanted to work in radio. I wanted to be, I loved talk radio at the time, and I wanted to be a, a talk radio host. And I remember my employment counselor sat me down and he said, you know, I talked to a few people at radio stations and this might be really difficult, but here's a great idea. You know, there's this organization that uh, that would offer you the ability to be an IRS agent and you could go for training and you could really do some things. And I remember at the time I thought, that's, I, that's not what I want to do. I have no interest in working for the IRS. And I think it comes back to, again, still, I think the vocational rehabilitation counselors have certain tracks that are known, that, that they are familiar with, where they feel like they can place people successfully in jobs. And it takes a lot of fighting, I think, to kind of get to a route that is going to work for you. You cannot just go into a rehab counselor's office and expect that they are going to find something suitable for you. They may find wow. something for you, but you may not like it. So I think going back to your question, Anthony, I've done a lot of scrapping and scraping and I've worked a lot of independent contractor jobs as a tech trainer. And I have gone through times where I have made very little money. And I have worked really, I've worked incredibly hard, some degree of a life and, and pay the rent. And so now I'm at a place where I'm making, you know, a, a salary that I probably never thought that I would be able to make. And it's always so amazing to me that people who haven't had this experience of really, I'm not saying that everybody at the company I work at has not had tough experiences, but they have I, most, for the most part, except for the folks that also have disabilities, they have not been based on all this mix of ableism and disability, I think that I've dealt with and really having to push just to make ends meet at times. I think in answer to your question, I feel at this point, one of the reasons that I am tired is because I spent my late 20s through my early 40s pushing and pushing and and having to be really scrappy and work and work and work and work. And it wasn't so much building my career. It was getting to a place where I could actually have afford this. to have a breather, where I could live a little bit. And so at a, at a place, I think now where a lot of people in their mid-40s they built a career and they just want to keep building. This is why, this is, I want to slow down. And I think I'm comfortable enough that I can find new different niches in, in my career and at my company to really be useful and then find a place where I say, you know what? I love doing this. This, this is what I enjoy. I am happy at this particular ladder step. I haven't quite gotten there yet, but I think I might be one or two ladder rungs Oh, Hello there. Yeah, okay. where I can just say, look, so-and-so, I know you have all these conversations about growth, but you know what? I'm tired. And, and it's okay that I'm tired. And there's a reason that I'm tired. And I want to spend my life not just working anymore, but I want to have the ability to volunteer. I want to be president of, you know, Pride International. <laughs> I, I want to be able to really get into some of the civil rights volunteering that I couldn't do for so many years because I was so busy just trying to work. I think that I have fought enough in my life that I kind of know, you know, barring something catastrophic happening, how to <laughs> keep myself relevant. But um, 
it is a lot of work. It's advancing as somebody who has a disability is a lot of work, particularly when you start doing it in a sighted world. Do you think that the pandemic raised awareness or changed awareness in some of these issues, especially since, you know, the direction for tonight is ageism, but in, you know, some of the intersectionalities as well? Let's jump to Scott first. Absolutely, is the answer to that question. And I think there is, in fact, data out there now that uh, reflects the fact that people in today's workforce uh, are demanding that they have a better work uh, life balance. People that want to be able to have a remote work at least part of the week and and that kind of thing. And, you know, employers are having to deal with that. Uh, Again, I I think that the pandemic did help prove that remote work could be possible and and productive and all that sort of stuff. You know, there is a thought, though, too, that if you're really on the make and you want to succeed, uh, you know, in, in the workplace, at warp speed, yeah. uh, you better damn well be in the office mm-hmm. where you can be seen and and uh, be mentored and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think that, you know, the jury is still a little bit out on that in terms of what, how what's going to happen down the line as people evolve in this new uh, hybrid world, <laughs> hybrid world, or yeah, exactly, or or and and decide that hey, I want to have time to volunteer. It's not just all work all the time anymore to get ahead, which you know a lot of uh, you know A type personalities subscribe to. So, Leah, tweaking it a little bit for you, do you think the pandemic? as some want us to believe, shine lights that make it easier for employers to see us as more viable employees? I don't know if we're seen as more viable. I mean, especially in, I mean, to me, there's a real difference between working in a, in a blindness-centric work area, like a nonprofit or mm-hmm. uh, uh, for the state that that, you know, works um, with tech training for blind people. There's a big difference between doing that. And I had just, when the pandemic started, I had been, I was a contractor um, for this company for a couple of years. And when I was a contractor, you could not take your, you were not supposed to take your computer home. You were not supposed to do work at home at all. And quite frankly, I disliked working remotely intensely, I think for the first year. But what I realized after a certain amount of time, and I do think employers have realized this too, to some degree with folks that have disabilities, is that they can get a lot more out of me if I'm not having to take uh, a train, a shuttle, a bus, you know, and be basically off the grid four hours a day, you know, round trip where I can be at my computer and I can have an 8 a.m. meeting if really, if need be, instead of saying I cannot take an 8 a.m. meeting because I'm going to be on the shuttle. It's the work-life balance. I really do hope that the, the, the beginning statistics that we're starting to see are right and they really are going to open certain doors that have not traditionally been open for us. When uh, we, we've had a hybrid schedule, there, were, there was a while there where I was going in uh, once a week. And what I found even with doing that is that it, it was, 
I think my tolerance for dealing with the transportation, for dealing with uh, working with new office situations, trying to get the accommodations I needed to go run from meeting room to meeting room. I think the people I work with really realized, hey, Leah can do a lot more if she's not ending one meeting and trying to get assistance getting two floors up to a meeting that's, you know, way at the end of the hallway. Because if she's just on the conference call and just switching from one meeting to another, she's going to be there on time. And, and I do think for people with, with disabilities, that is something that may increase. There's not going to be quite as much attitudinal blockage as how's this person. And I, I hate to say this, but a lot of times after an interview, people will think, well, how's this person even going to find the bathroom or their desk? There's less of that attitudinal barrier, but there are other pieces too that can create difficulty. Things like now that I'm working in a primarily sighted world, when I make a presentation, (laughs) I'm making a presentation with slides because I'm presenting to sighted people. So it is more difficult sometimes if there is a problem and let's say those slides are not displaying or something's Mm -hmm. wrong. (laughs) No one there is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, let me let me make this adjustment really quick. So in that way, it is it sometimes is more stressful. I feel like the pros definitely are outweigh the cons, however. And I think it's opening up the field for more blind people with with remote opportunities. So I have one more interesting question for Bryn. You're at a space in, you know, in your work journey where you travel a lot, you've got to go, you know, from place to place, multiple places a day, et cetera, et cetera. And you're coming to the middle of your work journey. Do you think about where your body will be in 10 years? Will you still be doing this? Is there room for you to go somewhere in the structure uh, where you can find a comfortable, you know, a comfortable balance. Where are you in that part of the journey? Well, um, the first thing I wanted to mention, um, because I wanted to bring in the intersection of LGBTQ uh, and and ageism, and I think I'm experiencing it right now. Uh, there's this oh, thing that I, I heard about on TikTok called queer time, and queer time is essentially, you know, when you come out of the closet. You're going through a second adolescence and uh, maybe you didn't hit all of the expected points in your life at the time that heteronormative society says that you should. You know, you get married at 25, maybe have a kid, buy a house by the time you're 30, maybe have another kid by the time you're 35, start sending them off to school. You know, you're 40, you're, you're kind of, uh, you're, you're working, you're getting into your forties and your fifties and your sixties and you're starting to slow down and it's time to retire. And when you're queer, you're on queer time. And that means that you're maybe not hitting all of those uh, checkpoints at the same time as the heteronormative society does. And so for me, I bought my house late. I had my first apartment late. I had my first job late in my life because of other things, not, you know, other circumstances, including the fact that I'm queer. And so here I am in a job that's very demanding on my body. As you pointed out, I'm running around, you know, eating not the greatest food in the world, uh, doing a lot of work on the road, doing a lot of very active stuff. And, you know, I'm doing okay right now, uh, but 10 years down the road, doesn't seem like much time, but, but you know, a lot can change in your body in, in 10 years. I don't know what my body will be like in 10 years and how much I'm going to want to be doing this kind of work in 10 years. I would say that uh, thankfully in my job, there's always new positions becoming available in the Department of Economic and Employment and Development. 
So for example, there's, you know, the radio talking book branch of state services for the blind, where I could do more, you know, audio centric work. There's more remote work that could be done. There's, you know, I could maybe get certification and try to become a vocational rehab counselor where I'm doing more stuff from the office and meeting up with clients in the office, you know, uh, and then of course, you know, technology itself changes on the daily. And so my ability to train people without having to go to their homes is getting better and better. We already have things like screen share and voiceover or um, not voiceover, but iOS. So I can share my screen with a client uh, or they can share my, their screen with me and uh, I can hear and see what they are doing. And so my ability to not have to go to their house is getting better and better. Also the people that are currently aging out of work and getting into state, you know, senior services where I focus, those people are more and more tech savvy or wanting to be more tech savvy. And so my need to like teach somebody computers from the ground up is going to lessen and it's going to be more about uh, maintaining that, that skill or maybe teaching them the accessibility side of it, but not so much. This is how a computer works more. So this is how voiceover works to do the thing you were doing before. Bren, I would bet that the people in that latter category that you just talked about are very shrewd, demanding consumers they want it now they don't want to wait around they don't want to they don't want to you know uh three-month evaluation and all that crap it doesn't work that way (laughs) right when i have when i have a full plate of 50 customers and somebody's gonna have to wait until mid-may for me to see them they go well that's bs and they want a solution right now and thankfully we do have things like training on cartridge that we can get through the Hadley Institute for the Visually Impaired or iBug Today has some Mac training courses. Oh yeah, good stuff. You know, all kinds of stuff that's pre-recorded training material. So, you know, to kind of further answer your question, Anthony, I think that my job will be less demanding in the future because things that people can do independently, like independent study through Hadley are getting more and more available. Um, and so it will make my job easier because I can just point them towards the right resources and get them going and then move on to the next one. Do you think the pandemic changed the face of the way you're going to interact and they're going to interact with you permanently or will it slide back some? Um, well, I think the pandemic did a lot for uh, teaching us all about all kinds of isms, ageism, ableism, racism, sexism. We've all had some time to be a little more introspective, do some reading. You know, uh, TikTok is is definitely a place where I have learned a lot about all of the different isms and how, how my interaction with people has changed quite a bit. So I think that the pandemic has changed just the world in general. A lot happened over the pandemic other than just the COVID thing. And we had so much time just sitting there waiting for COVID to go away to think mm. about it. So that's changed the world. And I don't think we're going to go back to the way it was, but I think we are going to definitely slide more towards in-person interactions again. Uh, and and you know, people are going to start demanding face-to-face interactions again. Destiny, hearing the conversation and, and participating for your spots, has your perspective changed at all? Or are there questions that may have come up that you hadn't thought about before? I've just been thinking about this. I don't really have much to add. I've been thinking the whole comments that were coming up in my head was like, I also know through interacting with some people who are older and aren't as tech savvy, 
because of other disabilities and stuff. And we've got to remember those people as well. That's something that's been on my mind. You know, I work with someone who's not blind, but disabled in other ways. And she doesn't have access to even a smartphone because we tried helping her get one, but she couldn't use it. She um, deals with shaking and stuff. There's got to be other things out there for, you know, for people who aren't as tech savvy. That's the thing that my mind's been coming back to back and forth to. But I'm also very grateful for the changes and awareness that the pandemic has brought. But I also know it hasn't fully changed because there are going to be people wanting to go back in person. And we still got to be conscientious for those people who don't feel comfortable yet. Absolutely. That's a very good point. At this point, you know, we're in an organization that's part of a parent organization that I think really does do a good job of it, of that. It does give so much opportunity for you to explore and find. And if you connect with people, they can give you their experience, they can share their experience, their resources, their knowledge, et cetera. And so, you know, this year, as we expand our outreach for BPI in both the LGBTQ circles and the blindness and low vision circles, that's one of the things we're going to be, you know, really talking about. Come into the organization and find the things that you need to find for yourself. So why doesn't everybody take a minute or two to kind of wrap up their thoughts on on the conversation tonight? And um, yeah, thank you all so much for being here. Let's, let's go backwards. Let's start with Destiny. I learned a lot. That's all I got to say. I didn't know how much I'd have to contribute. But I did learn a lot and it was very valuable to hear so many different perspectives. And your perspective was definitely welcome. Thank you so much for being here. How about you, Bryn? Well, uh, I've also learned a lot, but I I also just, you know, want to thank everybody who was here who, you know, contributed their their thoughts and their opinions. Um, We all come from different walks of life. Um, We've all been through different trials and tribulations. Some of us have been sighted uh, up until a point and then lost our vision, where as some of us have been blind our entire lives. Um, and, and the difference in perspective is paramount. It is absolutely necessary in our organization and in society in, in general. And um, so I'm just really glad that we have so many different perspectives and we can all learn from one another. Leah? You know, I think for me, it's a reminder that it's so valuable to be part of a community of other people who are visually impaired, who are all coming from different experience levels and whose sort of life tracks have all been really diverse. Because, you know, when I, when I interact with this community, I feel much more at home and at ease and I feel much more bonded than I do when I'm interfacing with folks from work. I mean, they're all great people, but quite frankly, a a lot of them just really have no um, perception. There's no shared experience. experience. No, no, there's no, there's no, there's no sort of like the, the experiences are incredibly disparate. And I think there are def absolutely people who, who, who really try and who aim to try to be proactively accommodating and, and who really, you know, want to understand. But I don't think there's enough to be said for lived 
shared experience. And I think I feel much more, I, I feel that my life experiences are really understood and the way that my life has been shaped is much better understood than it is in the world that I work in. Yeah, that's a conversation we should have because I wonder, you know, I personally, and I think most of us would admit to, I personally have never found like the happy medium. It's either they're too aware, they're over (laughs) psycho aware, they're so under aware that like they shouldn't even be there in the first place. So let's come back with that in a few weeks and have that conversation. (laughs) Mr. Marshall, thank you so much for being here. Your uh, perspective is always so damn cool. So why don't you take us out with um, your thoughts on tonight's conversation? Thank you. I always learn more than I give. Uh, And what drives me totally crazy is to hear Leah say she wanted to be a radio announcer and, and she was told she couldn't do it. And I was told similar things when I started my career in, in the law business. But I think about the people like the late, great Ed Walker, who was phenomenally successful here in D.C., and Ed Potter, who was similarly very successful as a radio broadcaster. And both of the ghost guys, and they were guys back then, I know, did it but with by far less resources than are available to us today. And the crazy part is that there's no counseling and rehab counseling anymore. Yeah. If there ever was, there, there are a few good ones, forgive me. Um, and I'm sure Bryn is in the good category, but th- th- they don't, they don't counsel, they push paper and they don't connect people with other people that could answer those questions and, and give you the knowledge that you needed when you need it most, when you're mm-hmm. just starting out, really. That's when you 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 need the help the most, really. Um, well, they want to close the case. You know? They do. They, want they do. That's all they want to do. That's, yep. that's that's all they want to do. So, that's a longer conversation, and I'd love to do have that conversation with some uh, other rehab professionals too to see what because they've got to be frustrated too by it. I mean, really. Uh, and then uh, one last thing, and, and this goes to show you, so illustrates my point. Uh, APH now has something, I think they still call it Career Connect. AFB started it years ago. And you could go into that database and get hooked up with people doing the most miraculous things in the world that you always dreamed of doing, but you didn't know how. And it was, I remember when I was starting out, it was very useful for me when, when I needed to know, well, how do lawyers do this? How do, lawyers, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, now that I've been in that system, in that network, and yeah, lawyers are a dime a dozen who are blind these days, I don't get any inquiries from people. And why? Why, why, why? And that goes back to what we were just talking about. The counselors got to put people in in connection with other people can really make a difference. Because at the end of the day, all the success that we achieve is up to us. Absolutely. What a great way to end tonight's conversation. Thank you, everyone. Before you go, I wanted to do my presidential duty. 
And remind all of you listening that you can visit our new web domain, bpi.gay. We're very excited about this. bpi.gay. Yes, .gay is now a domain name. If you are not a member of BPI and would like to be, you can visit bpi.gay slash join. That's bpi.gay slash join. If you want to send us an email and comment about this broadcast or anything BPI related, you can send an email to membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. No hyphens. Um, just all together, blindlgbtpride.org. If you want to contact me, you can email president at blindlgbtpride.org. You've been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind Pride International, a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org. Tree.